0: Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the
1: mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, Dave, I've got a stack waddy for you. Um, factual. It's not, uh, it's not brimful of laughs, but it's informational. Good. And it struck me looking at the progress, or non-progress, actually, of the Peregrine spacecraft that took off the other day, which was this uh, commercial spacecraft carrying various uh, payloads, uh, some of them private, you know, uh, urns of ashes and personal items and stuff for a ton of money which is uh, on its way to the Moon, but I think it's unlikely to, to make it because of its loss of propellant, i.e. they've run out of fuel or whatever. <laughs> and you'd be pretty fed up if you paid a lot of money for your mum's ashes to be carted off to the Moon and it never got there. But anyway, it reminded it's, me,
0: it's not an electric vehicle, is it? The, the, it's, it's going to recharge yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah. Car- carry on.
1: But it reminded me of a Voyager 1 in 1977. I don't even remember that. That was the one that went out to Jupiter and Saturn and beyond and presumably still going. And it had a phonograph record on it, which is astonishing in itself, really, because it was this is vinyl and, and how they'd expected some uh, interplanetary uh, uh, alien to be able to, to have the apparatus to play this. I don't know. But there was a vinyl record on board, overseen by producer Jimmy and uh, Most of it was, uh, you know, Bach and Beethoven and uh, classical music. But there were five popular music tracks. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to suggest to you that these are the five, but one of them is a ringer. Four of them were on that spacecraft, one of them wasn't. And here mm-hmm. they are, right? Johnny Be Good by mm-hmm. Chuck Berry. Mm-hmm. Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground by Blind Willie Blind Johnson.
0: Willie Johnson, yes, of course.
1: Liu Shui, performed by uh, Guan Pingu, the Chinese folk musician and a leading player of the seven string bridgeless zither. Oh, of course. <laughs> Well, you've got most of his, well, certainly his early stuff, anyway. Here Comes the Sun by The Beatles and Melancholy Blues by Louis Armstrong. Those are your five. Johnny well, B. I- Goode, Blind Willie Johnson, uh the, the Zither player from China, Beatles, Here Comes the Sun, Louis Armstrong's Melancholy
0: Blues. I think the one that wasn't included was... Here comes the sun. You're absolutely right. Because I know that Chuck Berry's Johnny McGood was there. The Chinese Zither player, you wouldn't have made that up, clearly not. I think I was aware that Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground by Blind Willie Johnson was on there. And, of course, that is... um, that's the basis of kind of Raikuda's Paris, Texas, isn't it? You know. Uh that that's that's the kind of tune that we're all we're all familiar with. And uh and what was the other one you said of uh, Melancholy Blues by Louis Armstrong? Uh, well, obviously it would be Louis Armstrong. Who we, we should correctly call Lewis, shouldn't we? Lewis, I think he is now uh, Louis Armstrong. but I don't think it's taken really. No. but he, he was Lewis all the way through. Yep. Even in Hello, Dolly, he sings, Hello, Dolly, this is Lewis Dolly. This is as Lewis, he wants to, if he wants to, he wants to Make it drive, absolutely clear. drive home the point, but it never yeah. took, did it really? No. So, yeah, the Beatles. No, you're right,
1: because all four of the Beatles were extremely keen for this to happen, understandably. But EMI, who held the copyright, for some reason declined to, to let uh, NASA use it. So it, never, it was never on there. Yeah, but it's yeah. an interesting thing, you know. You'd wonder if if that the re- same exercise was being done today. You wonder what you only had five tracks to pick. It's interesting, isn't it? That somehow meant to, were meant to represent yes. Earth.
0: <laughs> that's a hard one, isn't it? Yeah, it ought to be. You know, what should it be? It should be da- the Dave Clark Fives, "Glad All Over." You know, "Ernie the Fastest Milkman in the West" by Benny Hill. You know. Bloodwind Pig. Thing. Head rings out by <laughs> Bloodwind Pig. You know, so that <clears throat> some civilization far in the future on a distant planet will suddenly discover this thing and go, my God. I was born in the wrong place. I've got Canesham by the Bonzo Dog. That's right. <laughs> You know, or uh, I don't know what. Uh, I've got the big, country, big country's less successful third album. Yeah, I Hatfield. really
1: missed out here.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Early Trees album. <laughs> True. So there we are. But yeah, um, yeah no, I thought it was interesting actually, and Very uh, good. and how mortified the Beatles would have been, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we we have to obviously we almost seem to start with a with a passing nowadays, don't we? Um, and, and this week it's Annie Nightingale. And I'm um, oh no, very, very sad to hear that. Former colleague of mine from many years ago. Yeah, and obviously she's not been well for a while because she wasn't at um, Mike Appleton's kind of. Um, we had a bit of a more memorial for Mike Appleton. When was that? That was like eighteen months ago, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. In, like that. about May twenty. 20-
1: 22, wasn't it, I think? Yeah. She wasn't there because she wasn't very well, so no, she, hasn't been well for a while, but I was so sad to hear it. it yeah. And you overlapped with her, didn't you? I mean, I've got two memories of her. Well, I was... I was you overlapped with her at Whistle Test.
0: I was trying to... I was, um, I was actually looking last night to try and work out the actual dates of... um So in December um, 1980, um, I was in New York... And um, and I met Mike Appleton, who was a, the editor and producer of The Whistle Test, at a, at a Bruce Springsteen party at, Ma- at the bowling alley at Madison Square Garden. And uh, having had a drink, I said to Mike, You ought to have me on your program. I, <laughs> I didn't have many drinks at all, Imboldened but I did. Emboldened by the grape. Emboldened by the yeah. grape. I said that. And, of course, then, and then later that week, John Lennon was killed, and I came back to the, to the UK, and Mike rang me in the week after. He said, would you come in and do the Christmas books, which used to be a kind of whistle test regular, It'd be a Christmas book roundup. And, of course, in those days, there weren't many music books at all. There'd only be about four or something. So, anyway, I had to go down to Whistle Test, which was being recorded at the time at Shepparton, because they must have run out of studio space at, um, in Shepherd's Bush. And I was just looking up who was on the, the programme, because Annie was hosting it at that point. And on the programme that night were Japan and Sniffin' the Tears. No, fa- Driver's Seat. Drive I found them via the miracle of YouTube because everything that ever appeared on Whistle Test is somewhere on YouTube in bits. Very occasionally, with you, me, or Annie or Bob or somebody, you know, appearing appearing (laughs) at the end or whatever. Here they are Uh, sniffing the tears. Yeah, and so I went did did that with Annie, and uh, and then later on the following year. Mike asked me to come in and do some stuff. I used to do a thing called news desk, but Annie, Annie was the kind of the. Yeah, used to do tour dates. I'm sure you did. I can remember you saying. News, you know, well, that was news desk, you know. And it was kind yeah. of a ridiculous idea. Know, uh, you, you, you said was, pens and paper out, you know. Springsteen is going to be playing, uh, you know. Well, that was one of the, that was one of the things when Bruce Springsteen announced his um, his his tour uh, of the UK. It was announced on the television not announced uh, primarily in The anime or Melody Maker, which is kind of quite a big thing at the time. Anyway, Annie was was the host, and so I kind of I did stuff with Annie for uh, a couple of years, maybe, one way or another. And, all, you know, all I think about Annie is, and I've always said the same thing, she could not have been kind to me. Yeah, she's so nice. She could not have been nicer. and uh, And, you know, people ordinarily in that in those kind of positions, you know, TV presenters or radio presenters, they, they as a breed, they, they're paranoid. They because they they always their their fame hangs by a thread at any given time. You know, they can be the producer or the controller or anybody can decide, don't want them anymore. Get somebody else, you know, so there's so for the ones person ones. who's sitting in is often the person who could be their replacement. Absol- I had that with John Peel, who was meant to
1: have I- been on holiday when I replaced him, and he, t- he turned up the second night glowering in the studio. Abs-
0: absolutely, <laughs> they're, they're, they're all paranoid, um, for good reason. Uh, but Annie wasn't at all, she could not have been, you know, nicer and, and more accommodating and easier to work with, she simply couldn't have been uh you know so that was my main experience of her obviously I, I kind of ran into her um occasionally over the years but it was only it was only very occasionally i hadn't seen her for quite a long time and of course the other thing i remember um was that was the sunday night request show which
2: was oh, yeah. kind of
0: which was really her niche uh, Radio One, and she had well, it, I sat in
1: twice for that show when she was on holiday, and it was I got a real uh, insight into her relationship with her her listeners because that show it'd been actually quite unfashionable hadn't it, in the late seventies, you know, time oh, of God. punk. She was playing kind Canifor. Of it was basically blokes, wasn't it? it? Was student blokes who wanted to hear Freebird, uh, Layla. They wanted to hear Freebird. They wanted to hear Sultans of Swing, you know. And, um, by the time I got to do it, I think it was about 1983 when I was the editor of smash hits, probably part, partly where they might've asked me, actually, because her main constituency had shifted to 14, 15 year old girls uh-huh. and who read smash hits and just were besotted with sort of girls who had bedrooms with posters of, you know, David Sylvian, you know, yeah. Japan yeah. and, uh, and Mark Armand and Nick Rhodes, pale, interesting, unthreatening boys, you know, <laughs> and, um, uh, what what interested me was that Sunday night radio has a, a, a an atmosphere that's absolutely unique, really, a kind of melancholy where anybody who's you know who's going to school the next day has had the weekend and they're sitting there looking at their geometry set and their school bag and their uniform and the French homework they haven't done and feeling a bit mournful actually and a bit sort of sensitive stuck in their bedroom hating their parents and and bonded very powerfully with this kind of gothic auntie who understood that she was really good at understanding teenage girls and he wrote mm. didn't she for um various magazines in the in, oh, in yeah, the 60s yeah. about teenage girls and yeah. life of teenage girls and so and they were very goth too. these girls they would always there was one soft sell, and they would send a <laughs> little little plastic spiders And They wrote uh, in kind of green barrow and red barrow, pressing very hard, you know. And uh, I thought it was really touching how much they absolutely adored her and how much uh, and how well she connected with them. But that Sunday night, you remember that Sunday night radio? It
0: definitely is. Because when I first started doing uh, radio for GLR, um, and that was initially Sunday evening, and Trevor Dandy was. Who asked me to do it? I said Sunday evening. He said, Yeah, it's executive drive time, <laughs> which is kind of Trevor's little joke. And basically yeah. meant that people who'd gone to the country for the weekend were coming back from that kind of Oxfordshire, you know, very pleasant pile. Yeah, um, and they were stuck in traffic on the M25 or whatever. And so they were they were really listening. And I did that for a number of years. And he was absolutely right that Sunday evening, early Sunday evening, people were emotionally ready for radio. No doubt about that yeah. at all. They were kind of slightly vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for the reasons that you've outlined, you know, the weeks coming up or whatever, the week. Yeah, the Things they've been dreading over. at work, etc. And and I don't know now, you've you've not had daughters. I've I've got daughters grown up now, you know, but but let me tell you, Sunday afternoon and Sunday e- early evening, there's a kind of hysteria sets in with the yeah, just, People just laugh. People just do stupid things. You know? If they're going to go and do a giggling fit or anything, they'll do it Sunday evening. Yeah. It's just something that happens, particularly during winter. doesn't happen so much in the summer. You know? yeah. But I think this, um, this, it kind of, it's almost as if, as if we all still have a folk memory of the period on Sundays in the fifties or whatever, when there would be nothing on the telly and nothing no. on the radio, and we sort of feel that's still the case emotionally. Well, didn't right? you find that as a kid
1: with the with the, with, the, with, the, with the you know the chart rundown, the 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 the, yeah. the, the pop show followed by I think it was sing something simple, sing just some, hearing simple. the sound of singing something simple was the most depressing, the signature tune, because it meant that the chart show was over and the week was over (laughs) and and things were about to begin on Monday morning. There was nothing to look forward to.
0: I I can even remember um, my parents used to, in, in the early days of car ownership, I suppose in the 50s, they used to say on Sunday afternoon, we're going to go for a run, and a run in those days didn't mean that you got out. Yeah, yeah it meant a spin. Yeah, <laughs> it, it meant you went in your car. You got in the and car. just drove aimlessly, really, <laughs> no particular destination. And
1: when we stopped but, in labor and got out of thermos flask,
0: and the only um, thing that made it tolerable was you put the radio on. Yeah, uh, and you would listen to Alan Freeman or whatever, and, and the chart rundown. And you know, and Day Tripper was still at number one or whatever. And you'd listen to the, you'd have the euphoria of listening to Day Tripper, and then and then immediately followed by Welcome to Sing Something Simple with the Cliff Adams Singers. That's right. We'll sing the old songs like you used to know, you know. And then it was done with I don't know, way down upon the Swanee River or whatever. And you think, oh my I god, I know the heart would sink.
1: And you'd just been listening to the kinks of Minute beforehand. You know, it was yeah. just
0: heartbreaking. You couldn't yeah. take that kind of terrible yeah. uh, uh, risk. So, so Sunday evening, you know, things may come and things may go, but Sunday evenings on the radio will always and forever mean Annie Nightingale. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. Okay, new regular, Mark. Film club. Film yes. club. This is based on an idea. You have mates around, don't you? You watch. We do. Film. We have film night. Yeah, we've been doing it for years, actually. And we all get together and we watch a film. And then we just, enjoy. it's kind of it's the
1: film equivalent of a book club. It's very good fun. I mean, it, was, it was brilliant throughout the pandemic, too. We all watched things on Zoom and talked about them, not watched them online.
0: But yes, so, go on. So we, we started here with um, something that's on the BBC iPlayer. So if anybody wants to catch up with it, they can. And whenever it's around, I watch it. Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde from 1967. Arthur Penn film starring Warren Beatty and uh, Faye Dunaway. Enormous hit film at the time. Started the the mania for all things Bonnie and Clyde for kind of double-breasted pinstripe suits and um, slouch hats and... uh, you know, and flapper dresses and all that stuff. And, you know, George... waistcoats. George Fame went to number one, didn't he, with the ballad of Bonnie and Clyde, which was there for absolutely ages. Really good song, too. It's great. And this was all... It's amazing because this cult... Bonnie and
1: Clyde got to be public enemy number one, running and and hiding from every American lawman's gun.
0: But the amazing thing is, these were mass (laughs) murderers. Yeah. (laughs) These were... These were people with no safe and graces whatsoever who were, you know, thanks to the fashion of the time, turned into kind of culture heroes, weren't they? Alternative, uh, alternative heroes.
1: Partly by making them the most glamorous and, and actually convincing screen couple. They were just gorgeous to look at,
0: weren't they, the two of them? They are ridiculously gorgeous. I mean,
1: so I, fabulous. I was looking at a, a thing about them um, yesterday, a thing about the, the movie, it, and all about the people who were going to be Bonnie. I didn't know that. Shirley McLean bizarrely, at one point. Maybe um, that would have been very, very odd. And then uh, I, think, I think Jane Fonda was uh, was in the running, and then Sharon Tate. Cher auditioned <coughs> for the part. Warren Beatty wanted Natalie Wood. But the brilliant thing about Faye Dunaway was that you did, I mean, I was, I was 12, I think, when it came out, so I didn't see it until a few years afterwards, actually. But Faye Dunaway, you hadn't really heard of her. She was new, wasn't she? She didn't come with any kind of baggage. You just that, that was how most people were introduced to her, I think.
0: I was reading a fabulous book, uh, the, the great Scottish-American film critic David Thompson, who writes fantastic books about cinema history. I've got a book of his that well, I got picked up recently remained and called "Sleeping with Strangers," and uh, and it's about the history of kind of not so much sex in cinema, but our obsession with certain kind of couples and you know certain certain romantic erotic ideas that come from cinema. And his whole thing is that, you know, cinema gives you permission to look at these things. You go in the dark yeah. and you look at this huge, great screen with these fabulous, larger-than-life creatures. <laughs> and, the, and he does a big thing about the opening of um, Bonnie and Clyde, which starts with um, it's a small, no-hope town in Texas, out in the middle of absolutely nowhere where nothing happens. And it starts with this extraordinarily, incandescently beautiful um, young woman in a bedroom looking at herself in the mirror. And she's not wearing any clothes, although you don't really see this. You only become aware of this. But you get a, a feeling about listless boredom, don't you, that she's just she having nothing all, to do with But also she's obsessed with herself. Yeah. And, uh, and she looks out into the street and they're attempting to steal a car, is the most handsome man in the world, (laughs) as Warren Beatty. And one of the points that David Thompson makes is that uh, we buy into two things. You know, this is kind of realistic. But at the same time, we ignore the fact that they're fabulously glamorous, because the very last place in the world anybody who looked like Faye Dunaway would be is in a no-hope town, no-hope town, kind of unemployed, you know? <laughs> going nowhere, It just, just wouldn't simply wouldn't happen, no. you know. And so you have to just keep keep adjusting this, you know. And so it's supposedly realistic, but at the same time, it's, it's Warren Beatty and it's Faye Dunaway. And the original script proposed that. There should be a triangle, a romantic triangle involving... Oh With the uh, driver, with C.W. Moss. With, with uh, you know, Michael Pollard or whatever it was called. Michael yeah. Pollard played C.W. Moss. And uh, that was in the script originally. And then Warren Beatty, who was the producer, was calling all the shots. He obviously decided that wasn't going to happen. No. Oh, because nice. nothing was going to get in the way of Warren Beatty being... Being the biggest male star in the world, and that he yeah. really had to be he had to be raging, unarguable, heterosexual. Yeah, <laughs> and there's man.
1: a weird sort of tension in the film uh, 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 about the fact that they he, he's kind of as he puts it in the film, he I'm no lover boy, yeah, he's just incapable of yeah. any kind of sexual congress, isn't he? The impression being that he was damaged by experiences in jail, which if yeah. that was true at the real, at the real yeah, time. yeah, but uh. But then, one of the other attractive things about that beginning scene, I think, is the idea that that you can just take off. You know that you can just you can just abandon your life and you can take off on a, in a split second and embark on a whole new world. Because that moment, it all happens in about three minutes. Mm. She sees him stealing the car. They get into a conversation. He kind of flirts with her. They go for a, for a, for a, a, a bottle of Coca Cola, don't they? A little mm. in the thing in town, and she says, "What do you do for a living?" She says I rob banks. It's an armed robbery. And she's turned on by that, isn't she? Mm. She's really turned on. And she says, says, prove it. And he pulls out a revolver from his pocket, pocket, and she's really turned on by that. he goes in, robs a store, comes out with all that uh, money, and then nicks a car, Mm. and they're away. And that's the start of their life together, isn't it? And that's an amazing moment. It happens again, of course, with C.W. Moss. C.W. Moss is just sitting there at the gas station. And within three minutes, they convince him to throw it all in, and join their gang. And but that was that, very attractive as a, as a, as a viewer. I think, wow, you could just start a new life just like that.
0: But that was the fantasy of 60s films, wasn't it? Yeah. Like leaving. It was all about leaving. Yeah. If you look at all the great films of the 60s. They were about leaving behind, you know, convention and limitations and so forth. Yeah. And just going out of town, either on a train or on a motorcycle yeah. or, or in a car or whatever. And of course, well I suppose it was it two years later, when was Easy Rider? Was that sixty eight, sixty nine? Yeah, um, that's a classic example. It sounds the same thing. And of course, how does Easy Rider end with them being shot on the road? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that that was the great fantasy of escape, which was what drove loads of 60s film. So, anyway, Catherine Ross' character in in Butch Castle is much the same. She's telling me there's no
1: hope for a job. She turns to one point, she says, You know, I'm a school teacher, you know, I'm I'm 32 or something, I'm unmarried. He said, "Uh, You're the only excitement I've ever had in my life.
0: you just think, that is ridiculous.
1: You're Catherine, Your Catherine Ross. Ross, Ross Cry that out loud. Fabulous looking. <laughs> you know? With the two best looking men in the world.
0: Absolutely.
1: Possibly Warren Beatty. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yes. I know. So anyway, uh, that's that's the beginning of it. What the a film. film. Uh, and the way, also, another, another little thing they do is that they they telegraph those moments
1: of travel of the speeding up of the narrative with Foggy Mountain Breakdown by Flat and Scruggs, don't they? A little banjo rag yeah. tune, the country tune that comes in, yeah. which is just beautiful. But I thought there was so much about that film was amazing. And the, the Barrow character, the idea that you everybody's charmed by these outlaws. There's a scene where they meet um, Gene Wilder and his wife, and they try to steal his car, and then they kind of kidnap them, don't they, just for fun. And of course, Gene Wilder and his wife kind of are completely charmed by them. And they they buy burgers, don't they? And They sit there and he thinks he's becoming friends with them. Eventually they throw him out in the middle of the road, uh, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the countryside. But there's just that, that idea that we're all... There's something... There's a real romantic charm about, about
0: gangsters and outlaws. Which all comes from the fact that they're good-looking. Yeah. And if you cast two people in those roles who were not good-looking... The film totally changes, you know. Yeah, exactly. Well, you won't be sympathetic to them. Because at all. you forgive them for their brutal murders. Because they out-ness. look because they look beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And that's how films still work to this day. This is a junction in the Word
2: Podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit.
0: The police uh
1: made their first album. I think they started recording it on the 13th of January, uh 1978. Uh and this is we're recording this on the 13th of January. On a budget of 1,500 quid borrowed from Miles Copeland, mm. uh, their manager, and then obviously Stuart's brother. And uh, pretty amazing, the, the the amount of six, of the three hit singles that were on that record and the, the amount of copies that
0: record sold recorded Dave for 1,500 quid. It started, it, you know, in Leatherhead, above, yeah. above a dairy, um, in Surrey Sound Studios... Which is a studio started by a chap called Nigel Gray. And Nigel Nigel Gray was a medical doctor. This is interesting. He was a GP.
1: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people
0: today. Who did this is a bit of a hobby. And so because it was his studio and because it was not in London, the police could afford... To, to go and record that because the rates must have been competitive. And Nigel Gray, because it was his studio, was the engineer and producer. So this GP from Surrey, you know, within a year, is, is, the, is the most successful producer in the world, pretty much. You know, won Grammys and all kinds of things because he produced the, the first three police albums. The first two. Uh, and so what are they called? Outlandos de More, yeah. The same, it's the same one, then yeah. Regatta de Blanc, Rig- sorry, Rig- maybe Rig- that was the first one, actually. Yeah, oh, whatever. I get mixed yeah. up. And so, all those hits, like you know, Rock Sand and Can't Stand Losing You, and um, and uh, what comes after that? I don't know, We're Walking Not So down. Lonely, would it be? Yeah, like all, yeah, all those things, yeah, yeah, all done by him, and he ran those studios. And he did a few other things. He produced Susie mm-hmm. and the Banshees, I think, round about the same time. Yeah. And so, so met with them. And then he, he kind of sold the studio in the mid-'80s and retired to Cornwall. And and when he died, I think, in 2014, um, the members of the police, they issued a statement on social media saying, without Nigel Gray, None of this would have happened at all. Oh, that's very touching. I think it's very <laughs> sweet. Oh, really sweet that you know, they couldn't. Do what it a better. great
1: thing! you would probably made quite a pile of money out of that. Would be sitting there with a few silver discs on the wall, yeah. telling stories about the old days in Leatherhead. Yeah.
0: It, is, it is. absolutely extraordinary. That's a lovely story. That uh, it was. It was just uh, you know the availability of that studio at, at that time. You know. So 1,500 quid, which is the budget, would enable you to make an album. I suppose helped by the fact that, um, you know, they were they were pretty good musicians, weren't they? And they were quite experienced in recording terms. You know, Stuart Coble would have recorded loads of stuff with curved air and Andy Summers. Well, Andy Summers zooped and Zoot Money and all that, oh, wasn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, so they, they can do it and they can do it do it quite quickly. Yeah, so it's... Um, it, it's quite extraordinary. What were you saying about Phil Manzanera? You've been reading film Manzanera's book, haven't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to talk to him soon, I think, about this. but He's just written a memoir. And uh, I thought it was
1: really interesting. It was just, uh, talking about, um, he was just talking about working with David Gilmore. And uh, well, there were two bits that really struck me. One was he gets to do a charity show. He's the MD of a charity show. I think it was in, in uh, <coughs> Columbia. And one of the people he gets involved in this is Bob Dylan. And he talks about what it's like managing Bob Dylan for the day and how absolutely terrifying it was. And it's consistent with everything anyone has ever said about Bob Dylan. So, well, what are you going to play? And he says, I'm going to do this, I don't know, this Tex-Mex song. I really like this, you know. again, well, what song, you know? And uh, he plays them. And then he plays the two various other musicians who are meant to be backing him. And each time he does it, he plays a completely different version (laughs) <laughs> he does six totally different versions of this song and he talks about the tension of not knowing whether dylan's going to turn up or not and when he does what you know what kind of moods he's going to be in and what's he going to play And why isn't he doing what everyone else is doing which is turning up and playing one of their biggest hits because that's the whole point of a charity show so I thought that whole section is really interesting and the other was a bit where he's recording with david gilmore and about how david gilmore composes and david gilmore carries portable recording equipment with him he's just pocket-sized things you know and records everything All the time. In fact, there's a lovely bit on his last record. I think we recorded the, uh, the the sound of a train announcement. I think in a French station, which he eventually used as a five note signature for one of the songs. But he said that his first job working with Gilmore was that Gilmore just gave him hours and hours and hours of these noodles. Just said, go through all of that and see if you can find anything that could be developed. Oh, I thought, what God. an extraordinary way to compose. Because oh, you'd think that, you know, that, that you having some kind of discipline might help. You sit there and think, firstly, you could edit it yourself and say, well, that's not going to work. So let's abandon that straight away. Rather, no, there may be something in it, you know. But uh, I thought that was just, it just gave you an idea of just how. People spend so much time in studios if that's their approach. It's not like I write five or six tracks and get a basic chord structure for them and a, and a, and a, and a melody line and go in there and, and develop it. I, just, I go in there with nothing, just
0: noodles and muck about with them, see if they'll evolve. See, I'm, I'm never sure about this, but yet moving this to a completely different discipline our, our old friend, Ken Sharp, photographer, is sadly no longer with us. Yeah. And Ken and I used to used to go on, a, on loads of kind of work trips together, and you probably did. And, yeah. I, and Ken and I even went on holiday together, uh, families and so forth. And Ken used to take loads of pictures, obviously, being a photographer. And, uh, you know, he'd take loads of pictures of families and, you know, we'd be, going around the Scottish Highlands or whatever and, and the islands and with my, our kids and so forth. And he'd take, take loads and loads of pictures. And then when he got back to the hotel or wherever we were staying, he would immediately sit down and go through every picture he'd taken and he'd chuck away most of them. And I thought that was a fantastic discipline. Really good discipline. Really good <laughs> discipline. As long as you get to the stage where there's just
1: so much that you just can't tackle it.
0: Well, this you is that You just can't start, you know. This is where this is the problem the rest of us have. Whereas yeah. Ken had the discipline to do that and to look at a picture and think, no, I'm never going to want that. No. Forget, it's just not quite framed right. This is better. You know, this is more in focus or whatever. And so <clears throat> any clown can have loads of ideas. It's going through them and yeah. working out which are the which are the worthwhile ones, which are the keepers. Yeah, yeah. Is is the discipline you know that you need? And um, I'm not so sure about handing it on to somebody else. No, I think that's it's just convenient. like you're giving somebody else the difficult job. You, you know? really are. The, you wouldn't quite do yourself. Um, but
1: I suppose that's uh, I suppose that's that's uh, that chimes with the kind of music that. Um, that David Gilmore's composing and playing, which is, you know, it's not verse, chorus, intro, outro, is it? It's not. These are long, long instrumental noodles a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. I've just thought of another bit of the book, which is really <coughs> interesting, the Manzanera book, which he talks about the relationship with, with, with Roxy Music. You know, he was really young when he got involved and got the job and um, and they have all this success and then they fall out. But he's has the good grace not to fall out completely with Brian Ferry. So Brian Ferry becomes insufferable. And he leaves the group. And then they reform, I think, in about 1979. I went to see them, actually. I think I reviewed them for the NME. And then, again, there's a big old rift. and uh, But relations are kind of maintained. And they get together again around the time of the millennium, I think just after 2000. And um, they're offered a they, – you know, they, they, they're they working out whether they're going to get Paul Thompson involved. We've got Andy Mackay and obviously not Brian Eno, but Brian Ferry. And then they go to their manager and say, well, go out to the promoters and see what, you know, see what the lie of the land is because uh, we don't know whether we're going to do this. And the promoters come back, one of them makes an offer and says, well, we'll give you £7 million for 70 gigs, which in 2000 must have been amazing. This is 24 years ago. That's £100,000 a show, which would have been a huge amount, don't you think?
0: Yeah, said, well... Uh, that's,
1: that's, that's the moment where they all go, do you know what? Roxy music is a brilliant idea. <laughs> Suddenly,
0: I know, Virginia playing, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> And whatever they would have got paid in in uh, the millennium is nothing compared to what they would have got over the last 10 years. Oh, my God, no. The venue's you, have been so much bigger. And the well, and, 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 and prices. Just, at prices, know, yeah. Just look at prices, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they've gone up very steeply since Yeah. Have you followed the extraordinary story of the British Library?
1: Hack. <laughs> yes, but, I have. I read something about it, and because it was something that A.N. Wilson had said that, and you'll have to fill me in on as to why, but A.N. Wilson had been working there every day on a new book, and could no longer access all the books that he needed for his research. He said, "I'm
0: absolutely mortified." So, the British Library, I use it. Um, you know, I've got a reader's ticket, and uh, I'm a member, and so forth. British Library is. For anybody who doesn't know is that immense building right next to St Pancras Station in London and uh, it's not a lending library, it's mm-hmm. a kind of research library and so forth, but it's also designed in such a way that huge numbers of people can use it, either visit its exhibitions or or just um, be in there in the kind of the general public areas where people mm-hmm. people work. So you go there any day, of the, any day of the week in ordinary times and the fabulous reading rooms, which you can only enter if you've got a ticket, which you can get a ticket. And there's no charge or anything like that, you know. It's paid for out of your taxes and a fine use of your taxes, if you ask me. Um, and you go in these huge reading rooms and there'll be academics in there and there'll be... People writing books, or you know, people going through old copies of sounds, or you know, hi-fi and record uh, record retailer, or or whatever. Um, and, and then there's vast, great open areas which are not in the reading rooms, where young people, students from all over the world, are you know doing work, sitting around making use of the um, of the free Wi-Fi and you know and caffeinating themselves yeah. ch- chatting chanting each other up you know i've often thought you know if you had your time all over again you know you're a 20 21 year old student that's the place, that's the place to, meet, to hang out to meet meet Car- carrying around a, a very prominently a sort of very fashionable battered Penguin Modern Classic. Yeah, I they <laughs> your anymore. personality and intellect. Yeah, and uh, it's a hugely popular hangout spot. Thousands of people yeah. are there every day. It's warm. It's Wi fi You know, it's got coffee and so forth. And and then I think in November, they were the victim of a. Hack by a mysterious, possibly Russian-based organisation, then just go into their systems and kind of pulled the plug, pretty much, and said we'll only restore this. It's a ransom, not it? If you give us nine hundred thousand pounds, which seems to be quite a modest sum, of money, yeah, really. And uh, I didn't realise this had happened because I hadn't been in there for a a few weeks and the place i read about it strangely enough for the first time was in the new york times and this had already happened two weeks earlier i thought how have i not read about this this is absolutely major news so all their systems are kind of off you know they're just not working you know, that, and that, you know, even to the credit card machines in the place, you know, absolutely everything is wired. And so here we are now in January. Yeah, and Wilson was saying if they'd only kept the paper system
1: for the, being able to get books, you would still be able to get books. But obviously
0: well, you can't, you know. you can't get anything unless it happens to be on the shelves yeah. in the reading rooms, which a certain amount of stuff is. But only a tiny amount, a tiny proportion of stuff is actually there. The rest is in the bowels of the building. Or up in in Yorkshire, which is where you know then the major kind of outside London site is, and so if you order a book and I 've done this many times, you know you want to see some obscure book, um you know it'll be there the following morning, and clearly yeah. there's a truck going up and down to to Boston's bar, I think the place is called in yorkshire and, uh, and yeah and bringing stuff back. None of that's functioning at all. This is still going on. It's an absolutely huge story. Anyway, the one reason I wanted to raise it is it makes you realize how every electronic retrieval system upon which we increasingly rely has to be vulnerable to this kind of thing. You know. Now, I'm sure there's arguments about how how vulnerable this particular system was. But you kind of thinking, you know, if you were the person running Spotify yeah. or Apple Music or whatever... You'd be lying you awake know, at three in the morning. To you'd be thinking, well, wake up thing like this is yeah. going to happen. You know what I mean? And so... Over the last Well that's surely the way that wars are going to be started
1: See, so not you paralyze the country first before you start bombarding it, you know. Oh do you <laughs> stop it
0: functioning. Do you even <coughs> bother, do, you, do you even bother bombarding it? No, exactly. Because you you know, <coughs> if you got it by the balls, hearts and minds will follow, you know. Yeah. Um, and you know, we've over the last twenty years with music, we've moved away from physical product and we've Entirely got the use of the idea that absolutely everything is easily retrieved with a couple of clicks. Well, how easy would it be to make that impossible? Surely very easy. On very some easy.
1: level, you know. And they proved it.
0: Yeah. And um, anyway. Um, How's it going to be resolved? God knows. I'm sure there's people behind the scenes of the British Library sweating bullets. You know, 24 this hours. Now, this has been going on a long time. This has been going on. This is not going to be. This is not going to be. Well, yeah, yeah, months. It, it's absolutely extraordinary. And I haven't been in there since to find out how bad it is. I think I might go there next week and go and sit in the read rooms and uh, and see actually what what's what's occurring. I'll report back next week, Mark.
2: The word podcast.
0: Fix yourself a drink, and it's like being in the pub.
1: And we're joined by a birthday guest, uh, a great supporter of us, Sandra Austin. Sandra, lovely to see you. Good
2: morning, gentlemen. Thanks for coming to on see board. You. Yeah, Thank and you've you. celebrated the birthday. In fact, I think it was before Christmas, wasn't it? Did anything happen around the birthday? It was before Christmas, and the reason probably I wasn't talking to you at the time was I was. I'm in a choir, and we were doing. We had a big Christmas concerts and events and stuff and so yeah that's really what took up all my time certainly around my birthday i think we were what what kind of stuff do you sing in the choir then um oh very high falutin stuff because it's it's a symphony choir so we sing we're we're about to do Mahler's second symphony oh wow wow. that must be so exciting so it is fun where where do you do that you know it's it's in the national concert hall so we sing with the national symphony orchestra and uh and so we're singing in the concert hall. So it is So how, how many people are involved in that when
0: when everybody's turned if we all
2: Yeah, if we all show up, there's about 160
1: of us. Oh, that must be yeah. amazing to be in the yeah. middle of all that noise. So, so how much
0: how much how much singing are you doing in the course of was it Marlowe's Second Symphony?
2: Yeah, yeah, we rock up for the last fifteen minutes of it, I think. It's an hour oh, so and a half symphony. But you
0: you're there from the well, beginning. We, d- but-
2: we sit through it. And then we stand for the last fifteen minutes, and then we take it away. Right, yeah.
0: take it away, <laughs> take it
2: away. <laughs> what well, so what department are you in? I'm, I'm an alto, Excellent. so we're we're the always the bridesmaids, never the brides. Yeah, yeah. We never really get it to shine, but it's great. It's great, great fun. So, what's your choir called? We are called the National Symphony Chorus. Oh, I so, see. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay. So, so. Very good, very but good. I've only been in it for the past year, and uh, but I'm really loving it. It's yeah. It, you, you
0: presumably get auditioned and so forth.
2: You do. We, they did it quite nicely. They let us come along for maybe a month, like about four rehearsals, and then they were very gentle in the way that they auditioned. They kind of brought us quietly one at a time into a room, and you had to sing, you had to sight read something, and you had to sing a little bit, right. and then you went away and you, you stayed in that rehearsal that night, and then they contacted you subtly. By, by email. So it, the next week, it was who shows up and who doesn't. I was <laughs> <sure>. Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, oh dear, it all goes a bit it's just, quiet. It's all got, <laughs>
2: it all got very quiet.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're, literally, you're not singing anymore.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. So oh, you, yeah. you, you, the log you wanted to throw on the conversational fire, as is traditional with our Patreon
2: birthday boys and girls, it's something to do with choirs. Well, because it's been on my mind a lot at the moment. So I, it was. I was thinking, you know, we lots of bands, lots of singers, they use a lot of orchestration on their records, but it's much rarer to see them using a choir or at least using it well. And I just was wondering, um, what would you think, are good examples of someone who's used a choir or used it well? Or can you even think of examples well, of choirs being used? I can, think, I can think of a couple.
1: I, um, I, I, mm-hmm. I, well, the, the one I remember as a kid was, was Atom Heart Mother by the Pink Floyd, which was a pretty, pretty <gasps> tedious work, but actually the choir was the best bit on it. But no, I remember <laughs> the, the recent ones, or more recent ones, I, I think uh, uh, the ones I remember are, you can't always get what you want by the stones. Which is really yes. good.
2: That London. I'm going to say not barring. that recent, though,
1: Mark. No, not that recent. <laughs> no, Sorry, you're no, say, no, Mark. I don't, it don't know why
0: is, I said recent. Yeah, what <laughs> are you talking about? It's it's how many years? No, no, no.
2: Exactly. Fifty
0: five years 55 ago. Fifty five years ago. No,
2: no. But it and, is it is the one. It's the classic <laughs> one that springs to mind. Those the those young boy sopranos at the start.
1: Yes, and, and the, the other that, one was just Tender" by Blur, which is really really oh, good. Yes, which yeah. I think is the London. Um, uh, gospel Choir. Which I think that's a fantastic record.
0: But yeah, why aren't there more? Dave, have you got any? Examples? I'm sure with the London Bar Choir. I think I've got this right. I haven't got the record to hand, but I think they listed all the members of the London Park Choir on the inner, inner cover of was it what record is it? Let it bleed, isn't it? Um, cover oh. by Cover by Ilya Smith, of course. And uh, <laughs> yes, and, <laughs> okay. and, yeah. that and, was great. And amongst the members of the Landmark Choir was the name Nanette Newman. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I, I used to look at this and think, is that Nanette Newman? Brian, Mrs. Brian Forbes, the actress, whatever. It was only about 40 years later and no relation whatsoever. Oh, I right. <laughs> was vaguely just disappointed. And, of course, it, it, people used to speculate at the time that I think Edward Heath... Uh, was a member, of, uh, occasional member of the London Bach Choir, and was he possibly on? You can't always get what you want. No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. Oh uh, wow! Sadly, not. wouldn't that have been wonderful? That would have yeah. been a pop quiz staple, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah.
2: That w- would absolutely.
0: The um, the the one I was thinking of is not a, not strictly a kind of rock record or whatever. But uh, do you know the? Aretha Franklin live album, Amazing Grace, where she, it's a gospel, oh. effectively, which is recorded in a church in Los Angeles in, I don't know, God, late 60s, I suppose, maybe in the very early 70s. And I think it's it. It's only just been released as a film, wasn't it? A couple of years ago. And I think it's on Netflix or Apple Films or one of these things. Yeah. And I haven't actually watched the film, but I've got the record and I've listened to the record for years. There is an absolutely astonishing version of, uh, she does these uh, these numbers where it's a combination of a gospel song. I think it starts with, uh, oh, Mary, don't you weep or whatever. And then it goes into Carol King's You've Got a Friend. And hearing a massive grey gospel yes. choir singing You Got a Friend with a very basic kind of drum and bass, um, you know, studio backing back band is an absolutely astonishing thing. It's just to hear that mass of voices. It's the kind of weight of it suddenly appearing. It's a kind of textural thing, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's immensely Fine. exciting. Because you know, normal studio recordings have got, got a habit of kind of flattening the drama out of these things, haven't they? And also nowadays, we sort of we expect every sound to come out of a box of some kind, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> rather <laughs> rather than kind of come from human beings, you know. Yeah. And that the other thing you I think you mentioned on your email was about. Um, about
2: brass bands well in a nod to your part of the world david all right go on (laughs) well i was there again they're not something you hear very
0: often you really don't hear them often but my one of my all-time favorite records and the most wonderful example of this is roy harper's when an old old cricketer leaves the craze which is a wonderful ballad and uh, and they did, you know, they had the Grimethorpe Colliery Brass Brass Band on that, and they brought them down, you know, Abbey Road, and they come in kind of halfway through it, and it's just you could no doubt nowadays you could no doubt make your make your make that noise on on our phones, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you be able some... to tell, surely? Well, um... I don't know, yeah, but it was. In the era when it was done on the Roy Harper record, which is kind of mid seventies, yeah. the only way you did those things was you really did them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You brought in those people. It's a fantastic sound. It's a fantastic. If you if
1: you like I, if you like brass bands. I would recommend yeah. a, a group called the Hot 8 Brass Band. Do you know them, Dave? The New Orleans Band? Oh, right. Band? Okay, yeah, yeah. They're oh, amazing. They're kind great. of modern, you know, and uh, just with a sousaphone bass. There's something really
2: exciting and organic about that sound. It's so the, so lively the, and thrilling. There is uh, something, and it's very human. I think there's something really yeah, human is. about the sound of a brass band because somebody's blowing through a tube, essentially, yes. to make that sound. It's just do you, the is there is there an
0: Irish brass band tradition?
2: Not really, to the same extent. No, I, I don't think there would be. We have we, you know, we have fiddles and we have right, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. The, the barons and stuff. So we don't have that brass band tradition at all. Because um, like I can a, l-
0: I can actually remember. I'm so old. I, I can remember staying in my grandparents' house in a little village, and you would sometimes wake up on Sunday morning and you would hear Salvation Army brass band at the end of the street.
1: Wow. Oh, that's
0: wonderful. <laughs> was, yeah. oh, I'm sure yeah. at the time I thought, what a bloody pain. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, waking <laughs> up no. on Sunday morning, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we listen to oh, children's
1: favourites. sense the, the tea and porridge, you know, the... The, the the
0: brown toast and marmalade. That's wonderful in Yeah, yeah, yeah didn't it ha- is. Di- didn't have much brown toast. like to tell you, mother's pride <laughs> in <bride>. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There yeah.
2: was when I was when I was growing up. There was that ad on the TV. Was it for Hovis or something? With the 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 sound of a little of a brass band and the like yes. people walking down the cobbled streets. a loaf of Bread you, under his arm. I yeah. can
0: tell you two interesting pop facts about that. One, it was directed by Ridley Scott. No. Oh, yes. It's the Hobie's ad. And what? two, it was it was filmed in, I think, Shaftesbury and Daughters, Shaftesbury, and uh, on on a, a cobbled street called Gold Hill, which oh. is still there, which I visited not long ago. Um, You're
2: kidding. That's, wow. good.
0: That's very good information, Dave.
2: And that That's is really right. like,
1: We've randomly alighted on a Hovis ad, and you know the director and, you, and location.
2: Do you know is what, it? David? You should go on University Challenge.
0: Fingers <laughs> <laughs> <And laughs> on, <laughs> on buzzers. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bonus question classic. <laughs> Absolutely. On that note, Sandra, belated happy birthday. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very you. much for joining us. That's the end of the podcast for this week from me, David Epworth, and from Mark. Say say goodbye, Mark. Say goodbye indeed. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Sandra.
2: Goodbye, Sandra.
0: (laughs) Goodbye, gentlemen. (laughs) Lovely to see you. This podcast
1: was brought to you by The Word. only from rustolium